So there's this idea of the chosen one. If you're familiar with movies, and I'm very familiar with movies. My dad owned a video store for a better part of uh, almost 30 years. In movies, there's this idea of the chosen one. So have you ever seen Star Wars? Star Wars is this depiction of intergalactic battle between good and evil. They think, they think this child, Anakin Skywalker, is the chosen one. That he will bring balance to the force, for those who know what I'm talking about. Or there's another movie, The Matrix. And there's this man named Neo, which is just the word one mixed up. Neo, they think he's the chosen one who's going to save everybody. Or Harry Potter, if you watch Harry Potter. Or if you've seen Kung Fu Panda, that Poe, the panda, is the chosen one, that he will bring salvation to his friends, the praying mantis, the tiger, and the other animals. The chosen one. Or as Vincent sports, there's, there's this idea that there's a chosen one. If only we sign Harrison Kwok to our team, then we'll win. Not quite, because now I have a very heavy diet of uh, Netflix and poutine. I will not be the chosen one for any sports team. But there's this idea, if we just sign this man, this woman to our team, then we will win. The chosen one will bring us to the cup, and then we'll grab the cup. Or there's the idea of the chosen one at work. If, if we hire this person, then this person will make everything right. It'll be all good once we hire this person. But time and time again... They fail us. And many of us long for the chosen one in our lives. If there's just one person, if I just met them, everything would be okay. Someone to make all things right. Someone to save us. And so here we we have in, in this book called Matthew, written by this person named Matthew. He's an accountant. It was written about 55 to 65 years after... Jesus' death, so about 2,000 years ago. So during this time when Matthew the accountant wrote this book, it was a time when many people who were Jewish were converting to Christianity. That they followed, they believed the true God. But then this Jesus character showed up. He says, follow me, I am the king. And so during this time, many were converted, to, um, converted from Judaism. And Matthew, as a meticulous accountant, he's, he's writing an account of Jesus' life and his teachings. And the reason he's writing, the reason Matthew writes Matthew, is that he wanted to show his fellow Jewish brothers Matthew was formerly Jewish, or we could say currently Jewish. We can call him a Messianic Jew, someone who believed that Jesus was the coming king and the savior. So so Matthew was writing to his fellow Jewish brethren, showing them that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, that Jesus, in fact, is the chosen one, that your writings, your holy writings of thousands of years have been writing about. That's why Matthew writes Matthew. That's his sole purpose, to show the Jewish people that Jesus is, in fact, 
the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the chosen one of Israel. So we, when we hear Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's not like, hey, Mr. Christ, where's the bathroom? No, it's like a title. Christ means Messiah, Savior, the chosen one. It is a title, Jesus the Christ, the chosen one of Israel. So Matthew, he's, he's thinking about his audience when he's writing. And he quotes from the Old Testament. So the first part of the Bible. He quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel accounts. The gospel accounts who take into consideration what Jesus has done and they write it down. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call these the gospel accounts. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any of them because he has this audience in mind. He quotes more than 60 prophetic passages from the Old Testament. And the job of a prophet, it was to speak on behalf of God. God would speak to a prophet. A prophet would speak. It says, thus says the Lord. And the people were supposed to listen. So Matthew's recording 60 of these. We're going to go through every one of them right now. So buckle up. Kidding. If you want those references, let me know. He's demonstrating by quoting these 60 Old Testament verses that Jesus is who the prophets have been speaking about for thousands of years. He is the one. He is the Messiah. If you read through Matthew, I encourage you to do. Sit down in one, in one time, just read Matthew as a whole. You'll notice that he says this verse over and over and over again. He says, as was spoken through the prophets. And he would say this because the Jewish people would consider that credible. That was their source of credibility. If the prophets spoke it, we are to believe it. That's why Matthew was doing this. But many were not believing that Jesus was the Messiah. So even though the Jewish people, they studied the Old Testament for thousands of years, for centuries, sorry, not thousands of years, for centuries, their eyes were blinded to the truth. They were blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ was the chosen one, the chosen one of Israel. And that's what he's doing here in chapter 2, the first two verses. It reads this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose. We have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. In these two passages, we find the fulfillment of several prophecies. Things that were spoken of ages ago. Not a prediction, but saying, this will happen. So in the first chapter, Matthew 1, we, we read about this, this virgin birth. Mary gives birth to Jesus. And this was written centuries before by a prophet named Isaiah. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This was written centuries before the event. 
Emma wrote to, uh, read to us earlier from Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then and on and on forevermore. Another prophecy is fulfilled. We read that in verse 1 of chapter 2. He was born in Bethlehem. This was written centuries earlier by a prophet named Micah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. That is mind-boggling just to hear these three. Or these two. Scholars debate, biblical scholars debate that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime 200 to 400 of these. There's a mathematician who said, if, he just, if Jesus just fulfilled a handful, let's just say eight of those, it would be like scattering toonies across Alberta, two inches deep, telling one of you, blindfolded, go find a red coin that I... A, Painted red tunie I, I hid somewhere. Jesus fulfilling just eight of those prophecies would be like those odds. Basically, you're not finding that tunie. And basically, Jesus should not be able to do this unless, unless God is in control of everything. And he is the one who's orchestrating. He is the author of the universe. He's the author of your life. And he is seeing his story come to fulfillment and we get to read about it fulfilled prophecies should scare you because it's saying god is in control of everything or it should build you with wonder and awe and worship that wow god is in control jesus alone fulfills 200 to 400 prophecies there are no prophecies about the birth of other religious leaders. None. There's nothing about Islam's Muhammad. There's nothing about Mormonism's Joseph Smith. There's nothing about the Jehovah's Witnesses' Charles Taze Russell. There's nothing about Buddhism's Siddhartha Gautama or any other founder of any other world religion. Nothing. Yet the Old Testament is pinpointing numerous details about Jesus. The life of the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Chosen One. And here we have wise men, they call them, this in, in this translation. Other translations say magi. My wife's translation, translation is wise guys. She calls them wise guys. These wise men, these magi, they take this journey. It says from the east of Israel, which would take in several weeks, we assume, by camelback. They maybe had other help. It wasn't just a couple people. Well, we don't know, actually. We don't know how many people there were. In fact, we know nothing about these wise men. We know nothing about the Magi. And so for me to ask, who are these men? Who? Let's find out. We, we can't. The Bible doesn't say anything about them. And 
a Scottish preacher, uh, I believe he's Scottish, Alistair Begg, uh, he put it eloquently this way about wanting to know about the wise men and who they were. He says, we just move on. We just move on. We don't know. We don't speculate. We don't bring in conspiracy theories. And that's actually a good um, method of interpreting the Bible. You don't take something really obscure and build a worldview. What you do is you take something that's clear in the Bible to interpret the other not-so-clear ones if you can. So when it comes to the wise men, we don't know how many they were. We don't know if they were kings. We don't know if they're rich. We don't know if there were three. We don't know if there were 3,000. We don't know anything about them. So Alistair Begg rightly says, we just move on. Because they are not the central figure of the story. But here they are. They show up. They said they saw a star, and they came. Maybe it took them 40 days. We don't know. Maybe they were familiar with the Old Testament prophecy. If they're from the east, maybe they're from a place called Babylon. And they would have known of this prophecy written in Numbers 24.17. In Numbers 24.17 it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Who holds scepters? Kings. A star will rise and a king shall come from there. This was understood by the Jewish people to point to the chosen one. These were signs. God left signs in his book. And he gave the wise men a sign in his creation. And once the wise men found the child Jesus, what did they do? They spontaneously and freely worshipped him. We read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. And behold, the star they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They worshipped him. A baby. Who is this baby? What child is this? And if you have babies, it's strangers show up with gold, frankincense and myrrh. I'm not going to get into what that is. They're just valuable things. Show up in your hospital room and just bow down. You call the cops if that happens, right? That's not happening now. Why would they come? Who is this kid? Who is this baby? What child is this? They sought him. They saw the star and they traveled. They laid everything aside to follow the star. Alistair Begg was also talking about this story and imagining if these, these wise men were married. He's like, what, what do you think their, wife would, their wives would say? Hey, so I had this meeting with the other wise guys. We saw a star, and we're going to go on a 40-day journey. What do you think the wives would say? We don't speculate. That's not what we do. <laughs> we move on. We move on. But this is what happened. This is fulfilling something that another prophet said. A prophet named Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 13. It says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
They sought him. If you're a Christian here today, you sought him. He said, if you seek me, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. So these wise men, they left everything behind to find the king. And they worshipped. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. What is worship? What is worship? One pastor put it this way, Dr. John Piper. He said, true worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. True worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. These wise men brought some of the most costly items to this baby because they saw the child as more of a treasure than anything. That is what true worship is. And we all worship something. If we are Christians here, we worship King Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, that we give our allegiance to King Jesus. But we all worship something, whether it's ourselves, our bank accounts, our future, our marriages. I'm not saying these things are bad, but if we elevate them above God, that is the, that is the object of our worship. What do we think about the most? What do we spend time doing the most? What do you talk about the most? That is where your heart is. I can spend five minutes with people and find out I know exactly what you worship. Most of the time. So what child is this? Matthew is saying he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the coming King. Jesus Christ is the chosen one. But why did he come? Why did he come? We read another gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man, which is another name for Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this story, God took the initiative. He met the wise men in their own context, doing something and communicating something that they would understand. It's called contextualization. God meets us where we are in a way we can understand. That's why I'm not up here speaking Cantonese to you for 45 minutes, because you're not going to understand. And I would lose my job. But this isn't just a job. I have a great privilege of sharing about King Jesus. Mark says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom? What are you talking about, Mark? We were made to be in a perfect union with God, perfect relationship, divided by nothing, separated by nothing. That's what we read in the first book in Genesis, that God created this good world where there was abundance, there was goodness, there was life, there was plenty, and there was love, and his people followed God. But that relationship was severed by the disobedience of one man, the first man, Adam. Adam. 
by eating of this tree that God forbid them to eat. And now we're all cursed. We're all cursed. And now we're a slave to this rebellion against God, which we call sin. We are mastered. We are slaves to our sin. And God will judge each one of us for that. And there will be a payment that needs to be paid. It will be the cost of your life in everlasting destruction in a place that has no end and no satisfaction, which is known as hell. We will go there if there's not a ransom that is paid. But Mark is saying there was a ransom. There was a payment by God's Son. Mark 10.45, let, let this resonate in your soul. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. King Jesus went from the cradle to the cross to be a ransom for you and for me. He paid the ultimate price as a ransom for your soul. And how do you receive that, that gift? By faith alone. You say, I believe in that, what Jesus has done. He initiated that. God did by sending his son. And we receive forgiveness of our sin. And this is not anything that we've done or deserve. This is amazing grace. God today is seeking and saving the lost. Are you looking for someone to guide you through life? Are you looking for the one that will transform your life? Are you looking for the one who is worth following? Are you looking for the one who is worth giving your life to? That's what the movies are all about, this chosen one. You watch the Lego movie, it's Emmett. This, this, somebody, this nobody that becomes somebody and he's just going to change Legoland forever. That's what, that's what all these movies are about. You know why they're good? Because it's the narrative of this greater narrative that God is writing. And this, this Lego, Star Wars, Harry Potter business is just a, a glimpse of who Jesus Christ is for us, the chosen one. Jesus the Christ has come to seek and save the lost Jesus is the one worth giving your life to. Jesus is the guide for your life. Jesus is worth following. Jesus is the king. What child is this? He is the king of not only the Jews. He is the king of all of us. He is the king of the universe. He created everything. And that is why these wise men gave them everything. And so Matthew, he intends to show his readers that Jesus is the one that the prophets have spoken about and that Jesus is the only one worthy of our life, our worship. I want to leave us with three practical ways in which we can do this. How do we worship? Because that is why we were made. You were made, I was made to give glory Worship, praise to God. 
and enjoy Him forever. That is why you were made. You were made for no other purpose. Everything that you do is wrapped up in that truth. You were made for God, to give Him glory and enjoy Him forever. How do we worship Him? Because worship is central to everyone here. It is central to the mission of the church globally. John Piper said this as well, that missions, missions exist where worship doesn't. Missions exist where worship doesn't. We're not just selling socks. We want people to worship the king of the cosmos. And we do that through this, through any means necessary, legal and biblical, by the way, that people would come to know the king of the Jews. So how do we do this? Three practical ways. Get to know him through his word. Get to know him through his word, the Bible. If you do not know him, you get to know him by the word of God. Not veggie tales, not me primarily, but through the word of God that you can read yourself. If you can't read, you can listen to it. We get to know him through the word of God. And maybe you need help doing that. Maybe you're not sure. You know, the Bible's pretty daunting if you've ever seen one. It's not like, hey, here's this biology book. Good luck. You can help. You can get help getting to know it. We have women's Bible studies. We, they meet Tuesdays and Fridays. You can talk to Christine. Christine, you want to do a jig or something right there? Christine, if you want to know Jesus more, or maybe know Jesus for the first time, check out that group, Learn in Community. Or maybe you should check out Establish. They meet every Thursday at 7 p.m. That's run by Brent and Jody Rousteau up front here. They go through the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end, touching on foundations. Why is this important? Because we get to know Him through His Word, and we worship Him by knowing true things about Him. Second thing, yes, you should get to know him through his word, but that's not the only thing. My friend in Victoria used to describe it this way. If you're just sitting there reading, listening to podcasts, talking to pastors, doing this and that on, I don't know how many things you can do now to learn about Christianity. He calls that a theological glutton, that you're just, you're just taking in and your head just gets big and floaty, and weighty. We're not just supposed to know Him by studying, but also serving others. So the second thing is we do it by serving others. You can do that through serving with us at the Northern Collective in the, in the few ways that we do, but then you can also do that in your own community. There's no way, there's no, there's a right and wrong way to do it. But you don't have to serve just through the church. You can do it through your friendships in coffee houses, coffee houses, in cafes. We can be creative, but what we want to do is we want to introduce people to the king by serving others, by selling socks and toques and pencil cases and things like that. So get to know him through his word. Second thing, serve others. And the third thing is telling others about him. Telling others about him. If you know him, this is for those who know him. 
if you know the king, if you know the king, what things can we do to help others know him, to tell others about him? If you'd like practice in sharing your faith, maybe you can join us 2 p.m. on Sundays, some Sundays. We meet here and we walk the streets, talk to people, pray with people, invite people to church. Maybe that's a way for you to get introduced to what we call evangelism. But we tell others about him. If we're not telling others about him, why not? Why not, dear Christian? Is it fear? Is it intimidation? You don't want to look silly? God says, I love you still. Even when you mess up. Even when your friends make fun of you. I love you still. Isn't it better to try and fail than to not say anything at all? Let's tell others about him. This amazing king. And so may we do as the wise men did. May we seek him, bow before him, worship him, and give him the gifts of our lives. Not just the spare change, not just our spare time, but the best. The wise men offered their best. May we tell others about him, learn about him, serve others, get to know him for his glory and his glory alone. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an amazing king and you came down to save us. Would we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, as living worship to you, Father? And for those of you here this afternoon who have never encountered you, King Jesus, would you open hearts and minds that they too would worship the King and together we would worship the King as a family to your glory alone, your glory alone. Amen.